historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. Welcome to episode number seven, War with Hamas. My name is Itai Tenenbaum. I'm both an Israeli and an American. Born in Tel Aviv, moved to the United States at the age of 11 and lived in the Washington, D.C. area. At 18, I returned to Israel, served in the IDF, mainly as a tank commander. I participated in the First Lebanon War in the 1980s and for years inside Gaza in my month-a-year reserve duty. I run boutique tours to Israel and, of course, this podcast, Inside Israel. Today, I will be interviewing Professor Ruven Chazan of the Political Science Department at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Reuven is both brilliant and very eloquent, as you will hear in just a few minutes. But first, an update. Recently, Arab and non-Arab Muslim nations met in a summit in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Countries such as Saudi Arabia itself, Syria, Lebanon, Algeria, Iran, Turkey, the United Arab Emirates, Egypt, the Palestinian president, to name a few. The summit issued declarations of total and blunt hatred of Israel. And yet, with all their power and money, with all the world influence, nothing regarding any action against Israel. Nothing. On the contrary, countries like the UAE, Egypt, Jordan, Morocco, Saudi Arabia refused any action. They even refused to cut off diplomatic ties. Is this hypocritical? Well, they have good reasons to be. So let's first hear some of their delusional declarations. The Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, said that the Palestinians are facing a genocidal war. Israel is committing genocide, he said. Really? Look, personally, I don't take him too seriously, since he has already accused Israel way before this current war of carrying out, you ready? 50 holocausts of Palestinians. Yes, he said that Israel carried out 50 holocausts of the Palestinians. He had the gall, the nerve, to say this while in Berlin, standing alongside the German chancellor, 50 holocausts. Really? I was never great at mathematics, but that would amount to 50 times 6 million, equaling 300 million Palestinians that Israel has killed. Now, he's a total joke. Since according to the Palestinian Bureau of Statistics, run by him, President Mahmoud Abbas, in 2022, issued a report that there are about 14.3 million Palestinians in the entire world of whom about 5.35 million live in Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza. And by the way, the Statistics Bureau always inflate the Palestinian numbers for their own purposes. The same Palestinian Bureau of Statistics claims that in 1948, that's when Israel was established, right? The start of the conflict with Israel, there was 1.4 million Palestinians, which means the population grew tenfold. Amazing. Israel committed 50 holocausts, and the Palestinian numbers have grown more than 10 times since the conflict began. Now, we Israelis are pretty good at a lot of things, but I guess committing Holocaust and genocide, we are really bad at. Or I should say, completely incompetent, totally inept. A word of advice to any dictators that are perhaps listening to this episode. Don't consult Israel on matters of committing Holocaust and genocide. Obviously, you'll be making a bad investment. Another attendant to the summit, and this one really takes the cake, and was preposterous in condemning Israel, was, you ready, Bashar al-Assad. Sounds familiar? That's Syrian President Assad, 
who was the most vicious murderer since World War II. He is personally responsible, with the help of Iran, Hezbollah, and Russia, for the estimated death in Syria of between 500,000, that's a half a million, and about 613,000 people. So the Arab summit basically invited a serial killer to the summit to condemn Israel. Logical, right? You know, I actually have a brilliant, innovative idea. These nations, these Arab Muslim nations, should have an additional summit just on human rights. And they should appoint Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, as the chairman. Same logic. Look, the Iranian president at the summit was the only one that was actually honest. He called for Israel to be eradicated when he said that the only solution is that Palestine should be from the river to the sea. All that was missing from his physical appearance was a swastika armband. I will spare you the rest of the other summit countries' ludicrous statements. These so-called leaders make themselves irrelevant and are engaged, or rather consumed, with mental masturbation. But declarations are one thing. Actions? That's altogether different. So even though we heard very jarring, deplorable anti-Israel statements, the Arab summit in Riyadh did not approve any anti-Israel action. Well, that's surprising. Well, not really. Countries like Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain and Morocco, who also strongly and harshly condemned Israel, opposed the inclusion of any practical punitive measures against Israel. So the summit ended with a generic announcement without freezing diplomatic or economic ties with Israel. And you may ask yourself why. Realize that Hamas is part of the Muslim Brotherhood. So is Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Boko Haram, and others. The Muslim Brotherhood is an enemy of most of the Sunni and Shiite Arab and non-Arab countries. Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Morocco, Algeria, Jordan, even Iran have either killed or arrested Muslim Brotherhood activists. All of these leaders know, without a hinge of doubt, that if Hamas had their way, they would slaughter them, all of them. Palestinian President Abbas has held power for almost 20 years without an election. During all these years, he didn't dare step foot in Gaza. Why? His head would hang on a stick, complimentary of Hamas. Other than Qatar and Turkey, who are strong supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood, none of the others are grieving for Hamas. They're actually quite satisfied that Hamas will lose their power. Did I say hypocrites? That's an understatement. A second update is a very interesting survey conducted by the Israeli Democracy Institute. The Institute is an independent center of research and action dedicated to strengthening the foundation of Israeli democracy. To me, it is an additional watchdog of Israeli democracy. The Institute is well regarded in the free world. The latest survey conducted during the war with Hamas asked many questions. One especially struck me. Do you feel part of the state of Israel and its problems? This was asked in both Jewish and Arab samples. The survey found the highest percentage of respondents who feel part of the state since this question was first, was first asked in 2003. In both groups, Jewish and Arab, but especially among the Arabs, there have been a very sharp increase relative to the measurement taken in June of 2023. Within the Arab sample, the share of Christians and Druze who feel part of the state of Israel stands at 84%. That's remarkably high than that of the Muslims, but the Muslim Arab stands at 66%, which is really the highest it's ever been. Now, a breakdown by age finds that the largest increase in feeling part of the state of Israel, 
and its problems among the Arab groups ages 18 to 24 in November just now is up to 70%. Fascinating. The highest it's ever been due to the war with Hamas. You can access the full survey at the Israeli Democracy Institute website, idi.org.il. So now I'd like to turn to uh, Professor Reuven Chazan, who I've invited to uh, speak on this episode. Professor Chazan is the former chair of the political science department at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He has a BA from the Hebrew University, an MA and PhD from Columbia University in New York. Professor Chazan has held academic appointments at the Hebrew University since 1995, including, as mentioned, the chair of the political science department. Professor Chazan has held visiting appointments at several universities, most recently in the government department of the Harvard University. Reuven, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for uh, agree- agreeing to be interviewed. My pleasure. Good morning. Good morning. So um, I want to start with a, a personal question. You know, we Israelis have been devastated from this October 7th horrific Saturday. And I guess my first question to you is how you doing? How's your family? How are you feeling? Um, personally, I'm fine. Uh, Jerusalem has been uh, relatively spared. Um, but my close family circle has been affected. I had family living on a kibbutz on the Gaza border. Um, they were in their sealed room for days until the army uh, evacuated them. They are now in a hotel at the Dead Sea. Uh, I've managed to visit them. It's interesting. Uh, when the whole community moves into a hotel, on the one hand, there's still a community. They can mourn together. They can overcome together. But to move your life from your home into a hotel room is, is uh, at times suffocating and overwhelming. Um, I have two boys. One of them has been uh, called back to reserve duty. Thankfully, not yet in Gaza. So my immediate circle is impacted and uh, we're hoping for calmer days. I think that's like many of us. So I want to ask ask you actually another personal question. Uh, Reuven, you're a ninth generation Jerusalemite. Um, Your family's been in Israel for nine generations. My mother was a sixth generation Jerusalemite. She actually was a uh, wedding of the Mizrahi family and the Laniado family. So let me be blunt, and maybe a bit superficial when I ask you this, but uh, your family and mine have been, you know, here for hundreds of years, but much of the Palestinian narrative is that the Jews came from Europe and took over their land. They say we colonized them. Tell me a little bit about your family. Um, well, it's interesting. Um, my, my wife is American, and uh, I try to convince her that our children will be 10th generation Israelis. So that is royalty as far as uh, this part of the world is concerned. Um, I am uh, what is called a mixed marriage, uh, Ashkenazi and Sephardi. I've got uh, Ashkenazi roots that come from uh, Poland and Russia. And on that side, I'm only eighth generation Israeli. On my father's side, it's Sephardi roots that uh, the family was kicked out of Spain during the Inquisition. They rolled through Europe, um, not really being welcomed. They ended up in the Ottoman Empire in Turkey. And during the Ottoman Empire, they moved to Israel. Um, So, yes, I've been here for a long time. And your question reminds me of an interview I had on the BBC many years ago. One of those split screen interviews when the other side was Palestinian. And after a few questions, they actually 
let it spill out that uh, I'm an occupier and I've only come here recently. I asked how long they'd been here and they said that they'd been here for over 200 years. And I said, good, I've been here for almost 300 years. So I was here first. <laughs> and uh, that's when the interviewer in London said, thank you for um, joining us. And it was the end of the interview. So it's it's an interesting question that you raised. But honestly, who's here first is not going to get us anywhere. We're both here in, in the millions. And uh, despite all the violence, we're going to have to learn to live together. Uh, that is very true. So let me let's dive into your expertise. Um, this hor- horrific slaughter of our, our civilians and soldiers um, has led the IDF into the Gaza in full force. It is war. There's no doubt about it. Everybody knows. But I don't remember Israel actually declaring war other than speeches on television. What is the process in Israel in which we actually declare war? Um, It's a very good question that you ask and you ask it and and you said that you don't remember. um, And it's not your memory. You're right. It's history. Um, This is the first time this country has declared a war in the last 50 years. The last time we officially declared war was Yom Kippur of 1973. And ironically, we were surprised and, and a bit butchered on the first days of that war and again on this one. Um, and I don't know, but uh, maybe the political ramifications once the fighting is over will be quite similar. It brought about the end of Golda Meir's career and the end of the Labour Party rule in Israel. I, I believe that uh, Netanyahu's hanging by a thread. Um, he's damaged goods. I don't know how long he'll be able to survive after this war. But you asked how we declare war. And according to the law in Israel, war is to be declared by the government, not by the entire parliament, um, which since we're a parliamentary system, the government has a majority in the parliament, so it could be easily done. But it is to be declared by the government. The problem is that the governments in Israel have become larger and larger, um, quite unruly and, and difficult in order to have debates and and make important and especially quick decisions. So uh, the power to declare war has been delegated by the government to a smaller forum called the Security Cabinet, which is usually somewhere in the vicinity of about seven to 10 members of the cabinet, um, including the prime minister, the defense minister, the foreign minister, the justice minister, um, and a few others. This is the forum in Israel that can declare war, and this is the forum that made the statement that we are at war as of October 7th. Um, Just to make things a little more difficult, you didn't ask this, but since Benny Gantz's party has joined the government, we now have a third forum. Uh, Think of this as a funnel going from the largest, which is the entire government to a smaller one, which is the security cabinet, and now to an even smaller one of only five people, which is the war cabinet. They are the ones who meet every day, sometimes all day, and they are the ones who decide what will be done that day. They have been relegated that authority by the security cabinet. They bring major decisions back up to the security cabinet, and even bigger decisions all the way back up to the cabinet itself. 
but with uh, almost 40 cabinet members in Israel. Um, I'm thinking of this as teaching a class in the university with 40 people. You can't really have in-depth discussion and you can't make quick decisions. So we really need the security cabinet. And now in wartime, maybe we really need the war cabinet that sits. Um, there are two former chiefs of staff in there. There's the minister of defense, who's a former general. There's the prime minister. They sit, they talk hours a day. They make the quick decisions. And the bigger decisions for legitimacy and democratic purposes are brought up to the government. So just so I understand, in that case, there's basically the security, the smaller security cabinet with really three people who get to vote in it. You just mentioned the prime minister, the minister of defense, and Benny Gantz, who's a minister without a portfolio. And they kind of have the last word, I suppose. But they need to have a rubber stamp from the larger cabinet. Is that true? Yes. Um, the, the, the smallest group would be the war cabinet, which is five people. And it includes on top of uh, Gallant, who's the minister of defense, and Benny Gantz, who is a minister without portfolio, and the prime minister Netanyahu. It includes people like uh, Eisenkot, who joined in um, from Benny Gantz's party. Um, they make the quick decisions. But if you will allow me to disagree, it's not a rubber stamp that is brought up to the larger security cabinet and the wider um, government in general. This is the democratic process. We, the citizens, vote. We elect a parliament. That parliament elects a government. That government um, creates smaller committees in order to be able to work better. One of them is the security cabinet. And the security cabinet during wartime says we need the top people sitting together, constantly ready to make important decisions. And if they're really important, they'll bring it back up to us for discussion and debate. This is a democratic process. This is an accountable process. Um, whether it works or not is a different question, but it's, it's far from being a rubber stamp. There's somebody else to oversee the decisions of a, a very small group of people who are putting our boys in harm's way. Very interesting. Okay, since you're talking about the government, let's, let me just change a little bit and ask you this. Since the very first days of the war, the very first day of the war, and honestly, as we speak, Israelis have been complaining that the government ministries are either very slow to act um, or sometimes even non-functional. Now, I'm speaking mainly of civilians uh, civilian needs, rather yet, of those evacuated from the front lines, both the south and the north. Now, we've had wars in the past, so we have experience. What's going on now that seems to be not functioning so well? Um, well, here I will give you two answers, and one of them is uh, an objective academic response, and the other will be a more personal political one. I'll start with the academic one. We have had a center-right wing government in Israel more or less for the last couple of decades. Now, the right wing believes in smaller government, in reducing services, in reducing taxes, in, in the power of the individual, and so on and so forth. What this has done is it has cut back some of the government's capabilities. There are fewer people on the government payroll, there are fewer organizations that the government funds and, and creates and sustains. In other words, this is supposed to be a leaner, 
meaner, more efficient government, which is maybe fine during normal times, but when we need the government to come in and do what only the government can do. Um, and, and this is not something that the business world can do. There's no cost-benefit analysis here. This is a clear loss of just spending money in order to help people overcome a horrific situation. Um, this is something that the government has found that it is incapable of doing because it just doesn't have the infrastructure, the organization to do so. Now I'll, I'll move on to the second part, which is a more political answer. Over the last couple of years, if not more, we have had a government that is, on the one hand, large, many, many cabinet ministers, and on the other hand, based purely on political considerations. You give the ultra-Orthodox more cabinet ministries and you give them more money and funding for their specific organizations. You do the same thing for the right-wing settler parties. The Likud party has become a party that uh, is not only um, very much under the control of Netanyahu, but it is a party of uh, party hacks, of professional politicians, of people who are good at staying in power by distributing jobs to people who can get them what they need in order to stay in power. In other words, this has become a, I, I, I'm trying not to go too far, but a, a semi-corrupt, politically focused organization that is looking at what is good for them and not necessarily what is good for the country. And they have put in place in the fewer government organizations and structures that now exist in Israel, they have put in place people who will do what is politically good for those who are in power. And these people are not necessarily the right people, the good people, in order to take on major national emergencies. Um, so when we face war, when we face the need to mobilize the country, when we need every government ministry focused not on their little niche in society, but on getting together, getting the funds together, and getting people out there to help those who have been hurt. Businesses that can no longer function because of the war, people whose homes have been burnt, people who, like my family, have been moved out of their homes and are living in a hotel somewhere else. The government, the leaner, smaller, um, more party-focused government has found that it is incapable of doing this job. And regretfully, we really need them now. I guess the only bright point here is that civil society in Israel has been um, magnificent. It rose up and it is providing many of the services that the government has proven itself incapable in doing. And I want to tie this answer back to politics. The awakening of civil society in Israel overnight on October 7th is not by chance. It is because civil society in Israel has been awakened over the last year. The year-long protests against the judicial reform that the Netanyahu government has tried to implement what the American population saw as protests on the streets in Israel every week for 40 weeks. This is what woke up civil society in Israel. And the same people who've been organizing the protests every Saturday night, 
These are the people who overnight on October 7th shifted from protesting against the government to doing what was necessary that the government was unable to do. That's that's so, because that leads me into my next question, which is, you know, pre-October 7th, Israeli society was divided into camps very clearly, liberals and conservatives, religious and secular, Tel Aviv bubble, as they call it in slang, and West Bank settlers, etc. Uh, the common enemy Hamas seems to have united us. Now, my question to you, and I guess it's a little, a little bit of a prophecy, but have we really changed? In other words, can will Israeli society uh, look different after this war? What do you think? Um, that's practically an impossible question to answer. Um, I'll, I'll try to answer it in the short term. We were definitely divided. We were not just divided, we were polarized. Um, you know this as well as I do, that uh, we couldn't have political discussions with friends or family in Israel because of the polarization. Um, and if we did, it divided us so that we remained friends and continued to see family that didn't completely disagree with us. Um, I think this is one of the reasons that Hamas attacked when it did. Not the only reason. This uh, slaughter was in the planning for at least two years. In other words, this didn't begin when we began to polarize but they saw this as an opportunity. And by the way, every public opinion poll in Israel says that two out of three Israelis believe that uh, our polarization helped them in the timing of their decision. Now, what Hamas didn't understand is that the minute we were attacked, we circled the wagons, we are united, and there are no politics. This is very rare in Israel. Circling the wagons is possible because we're a parliamentary system, unlike the presidential system in the United States, where you're going to have Republicans and Democrats continue to go at each other because each party controls a different element of uh, government, whether it's a House in Congress or the White House. In a parliamentary system, you can circle the wagons, you can invite the opposition into the government, which is what we did. Let's understand what Benny Gantz did. After five elections, when he refused to govern with Netanyahu, he is now governing with Netanyahu because he's decided that personal politics and politics in general must be put aside. So Israelis are, are more united now than we have been in years. But don't let that fool you. Netanyahu has been working on politics since day one of this conflict. He has been thinking of the day after. He understands that there will be massive public protests against him. He understands that there will be commissions of inquiry that will look at not only why we were so surprised on October 7th, that could be the military's fault, and I'm sure that most of the heads of the military, their heads will roll after this conflict. But we will also ask questions on why we tried to be complacent, to subdue for many, many years. In other words, as soon as the conflict on the ground ends, we will go back to a political conflict. So yes, Hamas used our polarization to target us. Hamas miscalculated that we will unite in their defeat. But after Hamas is gone, we will go back to politics very enlightening, but not uh, not optimistic. But you know what? That's reality on the ground. We've been this way for many, many years. Reuven, I wanted to thank you for for you know, for being interviewed. 
Um, you are both brilliant and eloquent, as I've always known for years. Thank you, Reuven. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and I hope we see you and groups coming back to visit Israel very soon, and that a semblance of normality will return to this very troubled country. That I'm actually optimistic about. Thank you again, Reuven. Thank you. So I'd like to end this episode, as I often do, with a story of a family that are, I just think are unbelievable heroes. The story of this family is a man named Mickey. His wife's name is Miri. Um, Mickey is a police special forces officer who lives with Miri, his wife, and two daughters on Kibbutz Nachal Oz, which is on the Gaza border. At 6.30 a.m. on October 7th, that dreadful Saturday, Mickey woke up from loud sirens. He remembers back, back and says, there was a barrage of mortar shells falling on the kibbutz. There were unusually many. One of my daughters was camping out in the lawn in a tent with a friend. I ran to get her. When I got to the tent, it was empty. I started calling for her loudly. I couldn't find her. And then I saw a message on my phone that she is with her girlfriend at her home in the safe room. What a relief. Or so I thought. Mickey ran back home, joining his wife and younger daughter in their safe room. They expected the mortar barrage to be over, not thinking the kibbutz had been penetrated by hundreds of Hamas terrorists. Mickey even said that he heard gunfire, but was convinced it was Israeli soldiers. And then he started hearing the firing get closer, voices yelling in Arabic. Miri says, we looked at one another and decided, whatever happens, we're not going with them. Miri continued, When my daughter wasn't looking, I gave Mickey a sign. I made a gun with my finger and put it to my head. I also pointed at my daughter. It was clear we're not going with them. If needed, you shoot us all. Mickey was armed with a Gluck pistol with several magazines, but he faced many terrorists with machine guns, RPGs, and more. They came for him. They knew who he was. Again, a police officer and special forces. He now understands that they wanted him as a hostage. Mickey told us the following. I hear glass break. It was my window. I took a position in the house and waited. As they entered, I took aim and shot. I hit two of them in the head and one in the throat. They fell back dead. Mickey continues. A few seconds later, I hear another window break in another part of the house. So I ran to it and saw three more terrorists trying to climb in. Same scenario. I charged at them and shot, killed three more. A few minutes pass, and I hear a vehicle stop just outside my door. I hear many of them yelling, and then an RPG, rocket-prepared grenade, hits my front door, and it blows it away. I am calm and take a position between the bathroom and the corridor. They attempted to come down the corridor. Every time I saw one, I shot accurately, and he dropped to the floor. This took place for an hour and a half. Mickey explains that they wanted him. For sure, he says. They could have toppled the house on top of us, but they didn't. They wanted me to surrender to them, bringing me into Gaza as their hostage. They brought my neighbor and her daughter, begging me to give in and to come out. They said that if I don't, they'll kill them all. My neighbor's daughter, 10 years of age, started crying, asked me to come out, to surrender. A few seconds later, the same 10-year-old child said, I'm sorry, do not come out. She said it twice, don't come out. I replied to her, I love you. The mother and daughter are either hostages in Gaza or are missing. 
Mickey continues. They brought Tomer, a 16-year-old teen, to ask me to come out. I didn't. Tomer was used by the terrorists in several houses. Most of those that opened their doors were murdered. A few were taken hostages. When they no longer had use for Tomer, they murdered him. Mickey retreated into the safe room, closed the door, and waited. It was then that a man came in and started speaking in perfect English. He had said to him, If you don't surrender now, I am killing all of you in the safe room. Mickey had realized that this man was the leader of the assault on the kibbutz, and this man knew who he was, and that this man wanted him hostage. He held an RPG aimed at the door and was about to use it. This is when psychological warfare came in. Mickey said that he told him he would surrender. Mickey said, and I quote, I'll come out, but how do I know you won't kill my wife and daughter? Mickey also said that he lied to him, that he was injured, and he needed a few minutes to take care of the wound. Mickey said he even asked him, why are you killing women and children since the holy book of the Quran does not allow it? The terrorist, the leader, actually answered him. He said, you Jews are responsible for this and that they do not kill women and children. So obviously he did some lying of his own. He continued and said, your time is up. Come out now. I'm counting down and then I'll blow you all up. So Mickey cracked an opening in the door while the man was starting to count backwards. And Mickey said, okay, enough. I'm coming out. But then Mickey said, you promised if I surrender, you won't kill my family. Show me a gesture. Lower your RPG. That way I can be sure you won't use it. At that point, the terrorist lowered the RPG just a little bit. And Mickey continues and tells us, he thought he had me and lowered his RPG a bit. That's when I pushed the door open, ran towards him and shot him dead. That was the end of it. None of the rest of them dared to enter my house again. The IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, finally showed up and took back the kibbutz. Mickey and Mary's older daughter, the one that was with her friend, was also saved. On that day, during those hours, Mickey just wanted to defend his family. In the process, he killed 14 terrorists. Thank you for listening. The Inside Israel podcast can be listened to on the media players such as Google, Apple, Spotify, Amazon, and more. You can also access the episode by logging into InsideIsrael.fm. Again, InsideIsrael.fm. Inside Israel podcast needs your support. If you'd like, log on to the website InsideIsrael.fm and click on the support link.